0: Well, it is Sunday the 22nd of November, and a day of rest. If you're an atheist like me, let's just throw that to one side. I can see that the uh, audio is actually working. I'm sure you'll let me know if it's not in the stream. Uh, The chat is also working. Speaking of streams, um, the stream is telling me, excellent connection. Christ knows how long that will last, but... If it is Sunday for you and uh, you are taking the time to participate in this live stream, thank you so much for your company. I do appreciate it. And hey, hopefully it's getting you out of something onerous like, I don't know, mowing the lawn or whatever. So I want to talk to you about sulfur quality in Australian petrol today because it is kind of a serious issue, believe it or not. One that you and I probably don't consider all that often. It's not a front of mind sort of issue for most of us but I want to get into that for a few minutes and then we will go through the chat, isolate the decent questions, answer them, reflect the answers right back at you, hopefully get a bit of that out of the way as well and wrap it up by say 1 p.m. and then you know the grass will still be long and need mowing but hey you've had a reprieve and so has your family from you so There's a little bit of silver lining as well for them. You know, they might think that you're just down in front of the computer looking at porn or whatever, but no, you're not. You're educating yourself and engaging in a dialogue with yours truly. And even though I've been practicing for social isolation for like, I don't know, all of my life essentially, and now there's a reason to be good at it, then, you know, it is nice to engage with the audience in a way that you cannot. You know, it's nice to engage with you in that way that you can't with a pre-recorded package it's great seeing the chat just come up on the screen and you know YouTube is telling we've got 78 concurrent viewers already and we've only been live for like two minutes so hey thanks a lot for joining me and let's get into this it was prompted by a question from a dude named Ravi Chiba who says enjoying your show and live stream I tend to listen to the podcasts on the drive to and from work well ravi mate i'm terribly sorry to hear that nobody deserves that (laughs) perhaps you're a bastard in a previous life who knows but just a question ravi says i understand that using higher octane fuel in a car that is tuned for 91 is a waste of money for minimal performance return also understand the secret herbs and spices in higher octane fuel not that beneficial that's all true Unless, of course, you need the higher octane fuel to stop your engine from destroying itself. Because, you know, on a hot day, accelerating hard uphill to get around a truck with the wrong fuel in the car, with too low an octane rating, can certainly damage your engine. And you do need those secret herbs and spices. Although, it must be said that a lot of those secret herbs and spices that turn entry-level 91 RON fuel here in Australia into 95 or 98 are things like polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, which is a mouthful, and it sounds terribly chemistry lab, but all you need to know is that these chemicals boost the octane rating, but they're also known carcinogens. So there's that. Okay, so nothing in life is free. Ravi goes on and says, I just wanted to know if there is any benefit in running higher octane fuel purely because it is low in sulphur. Does the low sulphur fuel at 50 parts per million, which is the regulated amount for premium petrol in Australia, Ravi says, does the low sulphur fuel at 50 parts per million save dollars long term in terms of wear and tear on the parts? Keen to know your thoughts. So let's talk about that because... That's a misconception. It's like a gross misconception, you know what I mean? The The problem with sulphur has nothing to do with mechanical wear and tear. And I, I guess at a deeply propeller-headed academic level, there is debate about Things like sulfur content in the heavy fuel oil used in the shipping industry and whether the sulfur is actually beneficial because it causes the scoring on the bore lining of those massive ship engines to corrode in a controlled way. And the corrosion, this micro-corrosion that it causes, is thought to do a better job holding the lubricating oil into the bores, right? But what we're really talking about there is a completely different animal. Over here in the automotive domain where engines are really, really small, okay, by comparison to the size of those huge engines in ships where you can stand on top of the piston and swing your arms around and possibly play basketball with your mates, like, it's a different thing, okay, different speeds, different kinds of uh, degrees of presence of sulfur in the fuel, it's over the top in that heavy fuel oil that uh, ships use, but here still quite controlled, but The main problem with sulfur, right, is pollution. It's got nothing to do with mechanical wear and tear and everything to do with pollution, okay? It's also got to do with emissions controls and it's got to do with the choice that you are going to have from now into the future on the kinds of cars that you can buy here in Australia, which may be available elsewhere in the world, but will be off the table here because the high levels of sulphur in our petrol, really don't allow the most advanced engine technologies to be deployed here. So I'll just talk to you about what's happened on the regulatory landscape with the sulfur, okay? And I've done the dangerous precedent again of doing actually more than one page of research, which, Jesus, you know, if word gets around, my reputation is going to be trashed, okay? So please don't tell anyone. In April of 2019, which is roughly 18 months ago now, let's call it, okay, the federal government sort of snuck in a free pass for the fuel refining industry in Australia, which is basically toast anyway. Right? We don't do that much fuel refining anymore, but the federal it, the government gave the fuel refiners a free pass, and they'd been lobbying the government very effectively because they've got a lobby group just as effective as the car industry's lobby group, and it's got nothing to do with you, the consumer, and everything to do with what's good for them because they don't want to invest about a billion dollars into upgrading the refinery facilities onshore, okay? And they don't want to do that because they're already on the ropes. They can't compete with the mega refineries in places like Singapore, okay? But basically, the feds gave the industry a free pass for the next eight years back 18 months ago, so for the next six and a half years to maintain the status quo on sulfur. And that is a net disadvantage to you. And the main disadvantage as I see it, okay, is that pollution is a bigger problem than car crashes killing people. And you can quantify that because air pollution in our major cities, of which vehicles is the major contributor, killed 2.5,000 people early, prematurely. Okay, in uh, a couple of years ago, I think that study was released, but the number is broadly two and a half thousand, and the number for road death is broadly 1100. Okay, so the problem is two and a bit times bigger. Pollution is two and a bit times bigger killer than road death. They're both serious problems, don't get me wrong, but look at the resources that are marshaled against car crashes and things like speeding and drink driving and things of that nature and look at the resources that are marshaled against pollution. I mean, the feds went, ah, no, we'll just appease the fuel industry by giving them a free pass on fuel quality, which equals pollution for the next six and a half years from today, from eight years, from April 2019, when they allowed them to do this, okay? So we are the 70th nation in the world on fuel quality okay we keep telling it this is why i keep referring to australia as shitsville all right because we are absolutely not keeping up on the world stage in this way you know this stream keeps falling over on thursday night which i drilled down into the to the bottom of right <laughs> called my internet service provider indignantly and said, what the is going on? And they kind of said, dude, it's just congestion because you haven't got fibre to the house. You've only got fibre to the node. And, you know, it's nine o'clock at night and a whole bunch of gamers are there doing their thing, blah, blah, blah. What do you expect? And I sort of said, well, I expect the kind of internet connection I'd get in South Friggin' Korea in a hotel. Like I want upload and download to right and left hook me respectively and knock me off my feet because that's what happens in other countries. And, you know, plenty of people in Australia think that plenty of other countries are so so far behind us. And when you go there, you actually do a bit of travel. It's just not the case. And fuel is a classic thing like that. So not only are we 70th in the developed world, on fuel quality, but we are the last, the lowest country among the 35 OECD nations on fuel quality, okay? And that is flat out unacceptable, at least to me, because of the impact on the population of pollution, right? In 91 octane gasoline, petrol, we are 150 parts per million. Don't worry about what that means. It's just like, you know, it's 35 degrees today or something. That means it's hot. 150 parts per million is a lot. And that's for 91 and E10, all right? In premium petrol, the limit is 50. And you think, oh, well, premium seep's better then, isn't it? But in fact, in places like... China and India and the USA and the EU and Japan and South Korea, they're all on 10 parts per million, all right, for all petrol. Okay, so that is a massive quality improvement. Basically, what the sulfur is, okay, sulfur is a byproduct of crude oil. Sulfur is in crude oil and it needs to be removed during the refining process. It's that simple, it's a chemical process, chemical engineering, right? And our refineries don't want to upgrade the facilities to do a better job filtering the sulphur out. So what happens when you burn it in your engine is that you get these oxides of sulphur, which are not unlike oxides of nitrogen, which came to light so publicly, thanks very much Volkswagen, okay? The oxides of sulfur are just as bad, and they do also impact the catalytic converter in your car, which, the job of which is to convert all of those noxious things, like oxides of nitrogen, unburned hydrocarbons, carbon monoxide, things of that nature. It just takes those chemicals and reforms them in the presence of a catalyst, which is usually titanium or so, no, sorry, platinum, titanium. Titanium wouldn't be very effective. Platinum, okay? So... For all these reasons, because oxides of sulfur are bad for human health and they impact on the ability of your car to manage pollution, basically, the tailpipe emissions that it emits, we need to up the fuel quality. And basically, the feds have just given the, given the fuel refiners a free pass. And this is like axiomatic of the way the car industry has been doing business up until about 2010 in Australia as well. And what used to happen there was the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries, which is a grubby anti-consumer lobby group representing the car industry, would go and push the barrow mainly for Ford and Holden and say, "Oh, please don't adopt the stricter uh, exhaust emission standards because it'll be too hard for our member companies Ford and Holden to retool their factories to make engines that comply with the stricter overseas Emission standards, and that's why the rest of the world jumps on uh, Euro 5, for example, and we take years upon years upon years to catch up. That's essentially the framework here. So, you've got grubby little lobby groups from The car manufacturers and the fuel refining industry in this nation doing little handshake deals over lunch presumably with politicians to delay the adoption of all of these things and it's got nothing to do with being a benefit to Australian society and everything to do with the appeasement of individual industry sectors at a direct cost to you and me because two and a half thousand people die every year as a result of pollution in our cities. They die prematurely and it's generally not a fun way to go. Sometimes it's a it's a matter of lingering with you know breathing difficulties for years upon years. And sometimes it just increases the rate of things like heart attack and cardiopulmonary illnesses generally. And that's why we really need to get on top of it. Our premium petrol, which we think of as clean but is really five times worse than the gold standard around the world in terms of its sulphur content, it also punches well and truly above its weight on these chemicals called polyaromatic hydrocarbons, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, anyway, they're carcinogens, right, they just happen to boost the octane rating. And if you're wondering about diesel and where it fits in, because typically we think of diesel as a filthy fuel, okay? diesel is already at 10 parts per million in Australia, at least as I understand it. But the problem with diesel is that we are out of step here in terms of the cetane rating, which is roughly the same thing as what the octane rating is for gasoline. And we're also out of step in terms of the density of the fuel here. So what this means is, Even though the vehicles that are currently imported into Australia are compliant with Euro 5 emission standards... The fuel that we burn in them is not good enough to allow those vehicles often to achieve that compliance. That's essentially what this means, okay? And I've got no doubt that most politicians cannot wrap their brain around this issue. I've also got no doubt that the lobbying on the behalf of the fuel industry and the car industry is extremely effective, and there's no uh, similar lobby group for the Australian population, right? There's no dude going down to Canberra with 10 grand in his pocket and taking a bunch of politicians out for a long boozy lunch saying, hey, dudes, it's re- it'd be really good if you did this for the people because blah, 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 here's a 50 slide PowerPoint presentation and some glossy handouts on that in the way that lobby groups operate, Right. There's no one lobbying for the people, and we're therefore engaged if you want what's right. If it's the job of regular, uh, regulatory uh, agencies to do what's right, we don't have a what's right lobby group. We've got this industry and that industry, and they're all sort of doing these deals under the table, feeling each other's wedding vegetables, metaphorically, and it's ugly and it's not the way the joint should work. Anyway, that's kind of what happens. It gobsmacks me that we are worse on this than India and China because you see all of those images of popular culture, images of pollution in China, for example, right? The Beijing Olympics, right? It was a classic for images of that nature. Their fuel quality is better than ours, okay? That, that's kind of where we are now. You, you wonder why I call the joint Shitsville. Anyway, it's not about wear and tear. It's about pollution, and that means air quality, And, you know, Euro 6 is just around the corner, but don't hold your breath for better air quality in our cities anytime soon because lobby groups and politicians together with no balancing opposing force representing the people on this side, it's a disgrace, essentially. And I just wanted to get that off my chest without, you know, standing on a soapbox and thumping the table too hard because, hey, not my style, really. But I did just want to... um, I did just want to bring that up and if you like for the next uh, few minutes to the extent that we've got questions to sustain the whole thing I thought I'd throw the floor open to you you can give me your questions and I'll do my best off the cuff to answer them for the next little bit and then when it all ends of course you will have to go outside in the humidity in the sun if you're down here with me in Shitsville and you'll have to mow the lawn it's not going away all we can do is you know put it out of our minds however temporarily now Let us talk to Tobias Gregory, who says, just fire all those bureaucrats. Instead, give special commissions to highly competent individuals, which gives them power to get things done and let them cut through the red tape. Yeah, we'd need a balance, a checks and balances that would stop the lobbyists from infiltrating that kind of process with their tame PhDs, right? Because that's a thing as well. I agree with you that what we need to do as a society, Tobias, is we need to reaffirm, if you like, how vital the role is of the technical expert. Because look at humanity and look what we all enjoy. Like we're all sitting here today on Sunday doing this, you know, allegedly on our day of rest from allegedly working from home or something in the middle of a pandemic and doing this miraculous technology based stuff. Okay, And it really is a miracle to be able to do this and to get in a car and have it just work and to turn on a TV and have it just work and do all of that stuff that we take for granted. And the only reason that happens is science and technology, right? The software and the hardware. And that doesn't just happen miraculously. We didn't certainly get a bunch of politicians together and a bunch of lawyers and sit them down in a room and say, hey – humanity's sick of living in caves just sort this out and make life better you know we're dripping in food at the moment we have got a, a crisis of overfeeding humanity at least in the developed world the, the crisis is not hey we're on the cusp of starvation as it has been for a couple of 100,000 years the crisis is we eat too much because that's the way our biology is wired, right? Like this is all as a result of technology and science leading the charge to technology that solves all of humanity's problems. And yet when you look at how our regulators operate in the turd mine, okay, they don't value the people who keep the joint running in this respect at all. In fact, they get rid of them at the drop of a hat. Their opinions are often sidelined like, oh, la, 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 don't want to hear that because it's just inconvenient in the way that the truth often is. So yeah, I agree with you. We need to reinstate the attractiveness, the the worthwhile, the value of the technical expert in society because, you know. The different—that's the difference between living in a cave or just sitting down in an air-conditioned house and watching a live stream while you eat—I don't know, friggin' Cheetos or something. So, there definitely is that. Daniel M. now says, not to mention Victorian, New South Wales, and South Australian governments wanting to bring in electric vehicle taxation. Yeah, agreed. This is all about money. It's all about expediency and nothing to do about leading the charge for what's right. We're not even having a discussion nationally about whether we should all embrace EVs in the the manner of Norway right, where they just went completely for government subsidies. It's outrageous what they did. Outrageously good for EV manufacturers. I'm not sure it makes society better. It certainly does have an impact on air quality and things of that nature, but we don't even have that debate. And the problem with debate in society at the moment is everyone shouts at each other. I mean, just look at the comments feed in any of the social mediums. Look at the comments feed on YouTube. Look at it on Twitter when somebody uh, puts forward their point of view. Nobody gives anybody the benefit of the doubt. And we don't certainly try and steel man, anyone's argument and say, what's the best possible interpretation of what you said? We always take seemingly, or there's a default proposition among many people, always to take the worst point of view, the worst possible interpretation of what you did or what you said. No benefit of the doubt is given and we end up in this incredibly polarized uh, sort of bullshit economy where we're all just shouting at each other and that's not how problems get solved, frankly. What we need to do is give everyone the benefit of the doubt. And we need to arrive at a jointly agreed on, supported by reason, set of facts and then debate what we should friggin' do about it. At least it seems obvious to me, but perversely in an age where we've got more technology than ever before, it seems very difficult to agree on the facts. And I hate that. Anyway, Phil Tomlinson now says, do you think there's less risk buying a German car in Europe than Australia because there is greater support? Or would you still advise against buying BMWs, Audis and Volkswagens wherever you live? That's a really good question. You know, the only place I've ever owned a car is Australia, and the only place I've ever advocated for uh, consumers is Australia. And obviously, the, the the distinction is clearly that in Germany, for example, car making is to Germany what mining is to Australia. If without car making, the German economy would collapse, so it's kind of a big deal in Germany right? There's a lot of governmental support for car making in Germany and, you know, taxi, Mercedes-Benz is a taxis in Germany, right? Because they're made there and it just makes sense to uh, use the local product, support the local industry, whatever. And I assume the product is at least somewhat better supported there. Most of the problems uh, have to do with support in Australia of particularly Mercedes-Benz, Volkswagen and Audi, okay? They're terrible at it. And, the main reason, the main thing that makes them terrible is not that they're unreliable. It's just that the companies are not focused on the consumers. They they couldn't give a shit about consumers because there's another steady stream of consumers queuing up in dealerships to buy. Well, not so much Audis anymore. They've sort of fallen into a black hole. But certainly Mercedes Benz sells about twenty three or twenty four thousand cars a year in Australia, and BMW sells about eighteen thousand, I think. And Audi's down to less than half of Mercedes Benz now, and rightly so because you know they're just trumped up Volkswagens in many cases. But you know, the problem's not the reliability. It's the culture of support among the importers in Australia and the fact that you know, Mercedes-Benz in Australia is not Mercedes-Benz in Germany. It doesn't represent the same kinds of cultural things. So I think it's worse owning a Mercedes-Benz in Australia than practically anywhere else, in particular Europe, but also probably America, I suggest. But I don't know. I've never done it. That's just a guess on my part. Uh, Brett B now says, John, why do they call those things on the door armrests when there is no way a normal sized person can rest your arm there while still holding the steering wheel. That's a good point. I'd suggest that for most driving, you shouldn't have your elbows rested on anything. You should be holding the wheel at nine and three, which is where the ergonomic thumb rests are. And incidentally, where all of the thumb related controls for audio and phone and cruise control and things of that nature, trip computer and all of that stuff. The two knobs at 10 and two, forget it, useless, hopeless place to hold the wheel. They're just there for appeasement. Uh, any If you landed here in a In a spaceship from Alpha Centauri and looked at a steering wheel, it'd be obvious within microseconds that the place to hold it is nine and three. And when you do that, you can't put your elbows on the so-called armrests in the center console or on the door. And... The only thing I'd say is that here in Australia, we do tend to drive very long distances in comparison to a lot of other places. Certainly, we drive long distances in between rests, and that's a big problem because of the uh, proclivity to have crashes that are related to fatigue and falling asleep and things like that. But when you are driving a long distance, it is often a good idea to just drop your hands down and put your elbows on those resting points let's call them because that can sort of reduce fatigue although if you do train yourself to drive at 10 and 2 and your arms aren't rigidly out there like you're trying to jab some attacker in the face or something then I'd suggest that it is more relaxing than you think because you can apply slight pressure and your shoulders go back and you don't slump forward and you know hunch down like that which is a tiring sort of way to sit after a long period of time as well and it is also important to get the seat adjusted properly none of this sort of like this you know the boy racer thing that a lot of people do or the the granny thing is fairly tiring as well you know driving with the 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 top of the wheel in your dentures virtually that's quite tiring too so it's a it's about ergonomics and comfort and training and familiarity and it's like a lot of things Driving is not a natural process. Learning how to fight is not a natural process. It's hard to put your hands in the right place and get your elbows in, protecting your ribs and standing at 45 degrees to your opponent and all that stuff. You have to teach yourself to do that. And it feels properly awkward for for weeks upon weeks upon weeks and you think you're not going to get it. Same thing with driving. And the thing about driving is you don't have a coach there with you all the time saying, Nut, nah, get that seat up like this. Get those hands out like this. They should be a bit bent. And, you, you know, there's nobody sitting there like a drill sergeant telling you what to do in the manner of a boxing coach or something like that. So I think a lot of people get that wrong. Driving long distances is very tiring for them. And yeah, a lot of people drive like this, don't they? You know, or even worse, in Australia, their their left hand is down on the transmission selector, and their right hand's over here. These knob holders, and you know, it, it's got me stuffed. How you swerve, <laughs> right? How do you swerve, avoid, and regain control when you when you're starting the manoeuvre from here? I don't get that. It's, it must be very difficult. Anyway, let's just move on and uh, search search OVA seven twenty. I don't know what that means, but. Say hello to your parents, Mr. and Mrs. OVA 2020, won't you? Uh, Says, hey, John, my Audi A4 did a gearbox at uh, 99,971 kilometres, but who's counting? It's a 2012, and Audi have told me to go to hell. Interesting. It's cost me so far five and a half grand for gearbox fix, but now they have found another issue. Your thoughts, please? Okay, so... The current version of Australian consumer law came in on the 1st of January 2011, and it says that products have to be reasonably durable. And that means in the context of what the product represents, it has to it has to be reasonably durable, all right? And what you paid for it, is it a premium product? Should it last a, a long time? The reason they don't define it, incidentally, is that the same consumer laws cover things like pencils, right? So, Clearly, with a pencil, you have a kind of different durability expectation than, I don't know, a $100,000 car. But if your car is less than 100,000 it's only eight years old, and if you've serviced it properly, and if you haven't abused the crap out of it, then you might have a case to present to Audi that that vehicle has not uh, lived up to the uh, acceptable quality consumer guarantee. And if you want to find out more about this stuff, just Google C Consumer Guarantees and it will all unfold magically by virtue of the, the, the brilliance of Google to find that crap. Okay, you can do your research endlessly on that. But what I would do in that case, if we're talking about a great deal of money and possibly a great deal more money, I would spend half an hour of my lawyer's time, right? I'd find a local solicitor who knew about consumer law and was not afraid to be an advocate for you and just book half an hour with them and lay it all out and just get them definitively to tell you one way or the other whether or not you've got a consumer law case that you can take to Audi or whether it's a shot duck and you're just paying for it, okay? That's what I'd want to know. So, mate, I'd do that and I wish you all the best with it, but some car makers put up much more of a fight than others, I'd suggest. And Audi is one of those car makers, unfortunately, that does not give customers the benefit of the doubt. They don't seem to think that they're required to comply with consumer law in, in terms of the way they behave. At least that's the way I see it many times um, when I talk to consumers who are in a position not unlike yours. So that's the way I do it, mate. Talk to a solicitor. You need an independent advocate. You need someone who understands the granular detail of the law, and they need to tell you if you've got a case or if it's a shot dark. So, mate, have a crack at that. Get back to me. Let me know how you went. Make sure you let me know that we spoke online because, you know, someone my age, head like a sieve, doesn't even know who he is half the time. So, now, um, truck driver, I think, sounds like, BWD says... Has there been any research into the adverse effect of sitting too close to an airbag when it activates? I would imagine there are a lot of people, usually the elderly, who are putting themselves at risk. Yeah, absolutely. See, crash tests are done with a representative dummy. The dummy is representative of some default human anatomy, okay? And I don't know the granular detail of what that is, whether it's uh, whether it's an example of gender bias there. I don't know if it's uh, sort of the median human or the median male or what it is, but it's certainly not a child, and it's certainly not a big fat bastard, and it's certainly not somebody who's starving themselves to death, okay? And also, when they set up a dummy for a crash test, there is a great deal of measurement, right? How far is the chest of the dummy from the wheel? And these things are Sort of spelt out in the specifications for how to conduct a sixty-four kilometre an hour offset frontal crash test, or something like that. So when you go to the ANCAP website, or Euro NCAP or one of them, or AAHS, whatever it is, okay, there is a uh, a whole technical. looks like it must be like the world book, friggin' encyclopedia, of compliance standards for those tests. And when you see the results. It's for that representative dummy sitting that regulation distance away from the wheel. And any time you change those parameters, you throw the results out the window, right? They just, they're not as representative. So sure, if you are sitting on top of the wheel or too far away, or if you're much larger or much smaller than a representative human, then that's a problem for you because you can't guarantee how well or poorly that... uh, protection system is going to function okay uh, th- and there's no way to get around that there's no way to know there's no fudge factor you can you can implement but certainly it is a mistake to spoil the deployment or get in the way okay and one of the other things i should have mentioned earlier on the stream was you know if you are driving like this with your hand across the wheel or like that you know then what's going to happen if you crash in this position okay well, what's going to happen is if you do it with your left hand, I can't do that at the moment, but if if you do that with your left hand, your arm is going to, or your right hand, your arm is going to de- spoil the deployment of the airbag, right? So the life-saving protection for your head and your chest, kiss it goodbye. And also, because airbags deploy at like 250 or 300 k's an hour, it's going to fire your limb back into your face, which is also... Less than ideal, I think you'd agree. So, you know, I'd want to be wearing a Rolex because if I was going to have a scar in the centre of my face for the rest of my life, I'd want it to say Rolex or something and not, you know, Casio, whatever, Timex. Uh, Because I'd want to be be identifying myself as a premium idiot, (laughs) not the other way around. So, yeah, what you should be doing is sitting sort of that optimal distance from the wheel where your elbows are comfortably bent, not too far away, definitely not too close. Because you can never reverse engineer that. You can't say, oh, I'm about to crash. I'll get all that crap right. What you've got to do is you've got to be prepared for that. You've got to be in the right place. It's really dangerous, for example, uh, for... This happens all the time to mothers, incidentally. So if you are a mum with a young kid, you've got a kid in the back, right, in a cradle, forward-facing sort of uh, child restraint capsule thing. And kid drops the bottle. They drop the bottle into the uh, footrest directly behind you or, you know, maybe on the passenger side behind you. And the baby starts crying because, oh, Jesus, where did my bottle go? How did this happen? Why are you not rushing to my aid? And, of course, the way mothers in particular are wired to protect, to to respond to the cry and and react to it, typically reach around like this, right? And that's a good – it's a really good way to crash because your hand does that, moves the wheel, you hit something, you're out of position – The pyrotechnic seatbelt pretensioner fires off, breaks your collarbone or something of that nature, and then you're out of position when you get thrown forward, so the airbag doesn't do a particularly stellar job protecting you. So you need to be careful about that. It's a bit like flying a plane, you know. There's a lot of plane crashes that occur when private pilots are responding to non-critical emergencies like the door flying open, right? So if you're on the ground roll and you rotate and you take off and the door flies open, that's not enough. To crash the aircraft. But if you start to forget about flying and start to deal with the problem over here, it's enough to make sure that you're not doing all of the checks that you need to be doing, like the positive rate check and to make sure your attitude is correct and the power settings right and you're taking the flaps off, whatever, right? If you do that crap and just don't pay attention to flying, you're likely to crash. So, you've got to kind of get these things into a hierarchy in your head. Nobody ever tells learners this either. Stuff can happen. It's not mission critical. Find a safe spot, pull over, solve the problem, don't crash. Let the baby cry for as many as, oh God, 90 seconds. They're never going to be standing in front of a group of people and saying, my mother, that cow, that day, when I was 18 months old, she let me cry for 18 months, 18, 18 months for 18 minutes, 18, whatever, you know, it's not going to be a problem for the kid long term. Just get your priorities right. So anyway, that's a soapbox thing for me. Thanks for that. Be double truck drivers keeping Australia moving. When you go to um, Woolworths or Coles or Bunnings or something, have a look around at everything on the shelf and just say to yourself, without trucks, this didn't get here. It did not It did not arrive, you know, so life as we know it falls apart without trucks, okay, and therefore you might want to think about how you respond to them, how you react to them in traffic, and all of that stuff, because they are critical to the functionality of our society, so, you know, if they're a bit slow going uphill, or, you know, they're clogging up a bit of the road, then when you're at Bunnings, or frigging Woolworths or something, and you want Pate or whatever it is that you want, or a circular saw, or both pate and a circular saw, then you're just gonna say to yourself, well, the truck got this here, so maybe I'll give them maybe I'll give them a break in traffic. There's that. Uh Terra six six six. okay, nothing maladjusted about that as a fake name. Says thinking of getting a tent for my car, and I'm considering to get 20% all round, but the legal limit here in WA is 35% in the front window, should I just stick to the legal limit? Well, you can't exceed the legal limit, obviously, so 35%, uh, you know, don't exceed it, but then I'd want to see it installed in the car, I'd want to go to a showroom and have a look at a car with that installed and go, yeah, I can live with that, Okay like, how hard is it? Try before you buy kind of thing. That's what I'd do. I certainly wouldn't go beyond the legal limit, though, because if you do that, it's just a great way to get stopped and defected. And then, you know, uninstalling tint is one of uh, life's great grudge activities. You don't want to do it. All you're going to have is an untinted car then, and then you're going to have to go back and tint it to the legal limit or keep doing the same thing over and over again and have a whole bunch of uninspiring conversations with the constabulary. So, I wouldn't do that. To me, that's just kind of a waste of time. Crackerjack now says, hey, John, what do you think of GM's direction to really push the ute pickup market to the Chinese? It's a commercial decision, you know. Uh, utes and pickups are very popular all around the world, and I can see them probably kicking a goal in China. I was actually in China in 2007, and I was talking to GM's uh, publicity a PR guy over there who used to actually be the PR guy at Holden this was before I went to war with Holden on the crap way they did business in Australia and uh, basically I remember one quote from him we were at this uh, Michelin event and uh, he said to me well you know the difference between Australia and China is the GM builds a million cars in China kind of writes itself as a story doesn't it you know and yeah i have to agree with him it does the size of the market in china is insane and if you're a car maker you would want to secure a big chunk of that and obviously you know pickups and youths are popular all around the world like in retardistan they're hugely popular Uh, not so popular in europe because fuel's so expensive but anywhere where fuel is reasonably affordable like australia or america you know canada just South America, also. Uh, certainly, very popular in the Middle East, obviously, because they're not short of a, a, a drink over there, are they? You know, let's keep going. Uh, Clifton Manley now says My son rides for Domino's Pizza. He's threatened daily by car drivers for doing the speed limit. Yeah, I get that too. You know, this. Sp- I had a chat to a oh, it wasn't a chat, it was an email from a paramedic, but I've had this chat with paramedics, and the the remarkable lack of sympathy that everybody on the road has for everybody else on the road, and the remarkable lack of empathy and cooperation, it just gobsmacks me, because i got to tell you, the first time I went to Los Angeles, right, I was in my... 20s, I guess, and I went there for work. We were covering a car show in Illinois. We flew into LA. We had a couple of days in LA. We hired a car, and my mother was so um, she's very middle class. My mother and uh, she she was down on me going because f- in Australia, okay, all you ever hear about retardistan is people getting shot, <laughs> all those guns, right? And we we're on one of the notorious freeways in LA, the five or something, and. Because everything's mirror reversed, this is my first time driving on the wrong side of the road, sitting on the wrong side of the car. It's all very confusing. All the freeway off-ramps are on the wrong side, at least for us, okay? So you've got to drive like you're mirror reversing everything. And we've got to get off the five. And and it's like three lanes over this way, okay? And, uh, and I thought, oh, Jesus. And we'd almost missed the exit. I'm going, oh, Christ, this is a great way to get shot, you know? And I put on my indicator and all of these people slowed down and manufactured a gap for me to actually get to the exit ramp. And like, this is a new, like, okay, I'm like, I'm sorry, have I fallen asleep and gone to paradise? Because here in Australia, that has never happened to me, right? People don't do that. In fact, if you've got just enough gap, somebody will move maliciously to cut you off because, hey, Australia... We've got this incredible combination of aggressiveness and incompetence among, uh, the, you know, the median standard of driving. Everyone's aggressive and everyone's incompetent. You know, there's no skill. The, the ambient level of driving is crap. And the one thing, if I had, you know, if this was Harry Potter's friggin' wand, even better, if this was Harry Potter's friggin' wand, or even better, if this was harry potter's friggin wand what i would do is just wave it and make everybody empathize with everybody else on the road okay cyclist ahead Let's give them a wide berth. Pedestrian trying to cross the road. Let's just stop and allow them to cross or let's manufacture a gap for that poor bastard who's trying to get out of an intersection into the traffic. It's not really that hard and it doesn't really cost you that much time. And I don't know why these dipshit ministers for roads in various states don't have some sort of politeness campaign or whatever. <laughs> you know, like, just give everyone a fair go. How hard is it? If, if people... Bought groceries, if people drove their shopping trolleys the way that people drive on Australian roads, we'd need bigger prisons for all of the supermarket homicides. We just would, you know. Anyway, (laughs) let's let us move on. Jason D now, who stands out to me, he says, How does the sulfur content compare between fuels that are 10% ethanol? Is the sulfur content less the same or more due to the ethanol? Okay, so. The ethanol is only in 91. The maximum proportion of ethanol in E10 is 10%. It's up to 10%. Okay, so if 91 has 150 parts per million maximum of sulfur, and you put 10% ethanol in it, there's no, there's no sulfur in ethanol because ethanol is a distilled product from, you know, usually wheat in Australia, at least in New South, excuse me, in New South Wales. So you can take about 15 parts per million out of that by virtue of the displacement of uh, 10% of the 91 with ethanol. So 10% of 150 parts per million is 15 parts per million. We're down to 135 parts per million. So it's better potentially, but I wouldn't suggest that this is any kind of solution to the underlying problem because it's still you know, terribly filthy, in comparison with uh, the best practice everywhere else in the world, which is 10 parts per million. So there's that. Uh, Akadaka, akadaka, that's an Australian thing, isn't it? If you can use E10 fuel, would you use that all the time instead of, say, unleaded 91? Also, if you have unleaded 91 in the tank, do you need to empty the tank before adding E10? No, you don't need E10. All the fuels are compatible, right? It doesn't matter. You can have any blend of 98, 95, E10, and 91 operating in your tank at any time in a car that is compatible with 91 octane fuel, okay? That doesn't make any difference. You can shandy it up any way you want. And, you know, basically, there's a... The thing about ethanol, right? It's perceived as an inferior fuel, but actually the ethanol is an octane booster. And from memory, I think the, the octane rating of pure ethanol is about 103 octane. So when you mix it up with a 10% with uh, 91 octane, I think you get about 93.5 or something like that. Someone out there with a calculator can do that right now. It's a very easy computation, but I just don't want to bother and you don't want to watch me do that. It's about 93 and a bit. Okay, if it is the full 10%. So it's not an inferior fuel. All that happens is octane rating goes up. So performance goes up slightly, Okay, but you won't be able to feel it. And the other thing that happens is your fuel consumption is going to increase slightly, slightly, because even though ethanol is a higher octane fuel, It's got slightly less energy inside it compared with petrol. It's got 30% less energy, but there's only 10% of it in the E10. So... E10 has about 3% less energy in it than 91 octane fuel. So your fuel consumption will go up by about 3%. Your engine will go a bit better at wide open throttle against the balancing load, you know, but you're not going to feel any difference either way. And you're not going to be able to feel the fuel consumption difference either, because most people are incapable of measuring their fuel economy in a scientifically controlled way and getting meaningful answers down there in that 3% domain. You know, it's very difficult to do that in practice so for all of this, re- for all of these reasons, I'd suggest, yeah, just go with E10 because the big advantage of E10, as I see it, is it dilutes our national dependency on foreign oil. Because all of the ethanol that we consume in E10 is is produced here. It's grown here and produced here. So farmers grow it. It's distilled here. It's it's all made here. We're contributing to the nation, and money's not going offshore. That's good. We're not dependent as much on the supply of fuel from overseas, and we drink about 20 billion litres of petrol a year in Australia, so we could dilute that. We could reduce our dependency by roughly 2 billion litres of foreign oil just by embracing E10. And I don't know why there's such a, a popular perception that it's such a shit fuel, because frankly it's not. There are, there are advantages and disadvantages, but they're really down there in the noise. It doesn't really make any difference, and the pluses offset the minuses. There needs to be more competition in the manufacture of ethanol, incidentally, because there's essentially one manufacturer of ethanol in New South Wales, the biggest, the most populated state in Australia, okay, it's essentially Manildra all day long, okay, and they operate a, a distillery for ethanol on the south coast, and if there were more providers of ethanol, then there'd be more competition, and I'd suggest that the pricing structure of ethanol would be more reasonable. I don't think it's I don't think it's healthy for markets to have a monopoly, and that's certainly what uh, pertains at the moment on that. Now, Jonathan Vander Unpronounceable Wing Art says, Hey, and, hey, right back at you. What's the difference between types of diesel sold in Australia, e.g., premium, regular, and what should I use with my DPF diesel vehicle? Okay. The diesel thing is really mostly marketing, okay, because there's a diesel fuel standard, diesel fuel quality standard, and there's no difference between the, uh, let me put it this way, engines and DPFs and systems like that in Australia are designed to run on fuel that complies with the diesel fuel standard. And all diesel sold in Australia complies. At least all di- automotive diesel complies with that. Okay, that would be things like the cetane, the minimum cetane rating, and lubricity, and all of those things. You know, there's viscosity and all kinds of things in the standard. So it all complies. What the fuel manufacturers will tell you is that there's a superior add- additive package in the premium, and it does things like it doesn't foam as much on filling up so it doesn't bubble up as much up the filling spout who cares and they will talk about cleaning your engine but i'm not so sure that dirty engine is a thing okay because the fuel pumps up the high pressure end of a common rail diesel engine the fuel pumps and the injectors they're very precise things and they don't get dirty and if they do get dirty it costs you heaps okay but that dirtiness is usually the result of some sort of internal problem like you filling up with gasoline instead of diesel and because gasoline doesn't lubricate the pump it spalls the shit out of the hardened faces that deliver the pressure to drive the injectors and all of that swarf and those filings and all of that you know stuff that falls off that that spalls off I guess just flows downstream and screws your injectors and I'm not seeing a long-term trend towards the failure of modern diesel engines as a consequence of running standard diesel. So I'd suggest premium diesel is mostly marketing. And if you want to buy it, it's not going to hurt. But I don't see not buying it as being a disadvantage for a modern diesel engine with Uh, you know, DPFs and all of that stuff, the piezoelectric injectors and all of the expensive stuff to fix. I'm I'm not seeing the fuel quality standard for diesel being an issue there. It certainly was before we had the 10 parts per million limit on diesel in Australia, but not so much now, I don't think. Now, uh, we've got Mark Valme. Now, apologies, Mark, if I mangled your name there. V-A-L-M-E, how else would you say it? The Mark 8 Golf R... Would you wait for it to come out and then wait for dealership prices to come down or is it shit and just get the Mark 7.5 fan from America? Well, Mark, uh, thank you for being a fan. Uh, What I'd suggest is whenever a new vehicle is deployed into the market and particularly a halo car like a Golf R, all right, there's a whole bunch of people who've been waiting for it. So there is a flood of demand prices, actual transactional prices are set, if you like, by supply and demand. And when you pump up demand and supply is whatever it is, then the price goes up. Yeah, that's just how this works. So I would certainly wait until demand it recedes back to normal cruising altitude and I would also wait in case there are bugs like you know teething problems that need to be fixed and that happens they'll implement these running fixes and three months down the track all the cars that are sold have the running fixes in them at the point of sale and that would be me. That's what I would do. I have a reservation about Volkswagens generally. I would say that generally they look great and generally they drive great. And certainly Golf R is a halo performance car and there's nothing wrong with how it goes. Okay. My reservation is how you will be treated as a customer if you have a problem. And that's not going to change anytime soon. I'm also unable to comment about the level of service that you might get from Volkswagen America. They might have changed their tune after 2015. Who knows? I'm not a specialist at that certainly a very nice car but i would wait and i'd give it if you can give it at least 12 weeks i think that would insulate you nicely from those two problems teething problem and the short-term blip in demand that pumps up transactional prices by removing essentially your ability to negotiate effectively so there's that now george is there in the chat as well he says hi john i have washed my mouth with soap (laughs) for suggesting you have crossed a senior line on twitter oh it's that george Yes. Well, there was that. What is I We'll get to that. But I'll tell you the backstory there because that's kind of funny. If I can find it here and multitask, you know, talk and operate a phone at the same time, I think I passed the test. Jesus, don't tell anyone this is a breach of the male code of ethics, being able to do both these things. But I was driving the Kona EV the other day. I don't know how well-focused that is. But I took that photograph of the dashboard after driving it a couple of, I think I drove it about 150 kilometers at that point, right, after charging it up fully. And essentially what it says, what it's telling me is economical driving, 98%, normal driving, 2%, aggressive driving, 0%. And I looked at that and I thought, has it changed me or am I losing my friggin' touch? And of course, I tweeted that because I was, you know, at a loose end at the time. And I thought, I'll just go on the Twitters. And <laughs> George gets back to me and goes, maybe it's just a senior moment, dude, kind of thing. Anywho, I pointed out to George that I really wanted to uh, age disgracefully. And this wasn't cutting it. You know, this, this horrible driving style wasn't cutting it. So... Anyway, thanks for engaging with me, George, on Twitter. I appreciate it, mate. Now, let's answer your question. What is your opinion on the new BMW M340i? It seems like a good compromise between the 330i and the hardcore M3. All right, now, up front, I'd have to say that these are pretty niche products, and I generally don't spend a lot of my time driving uh, hot BMWs. Like, when you've been a motoring journalist for 30 years, it's kind of nice to drive a, a... speedy premium cars but it's not as nice as if you never get to do that and you haven't really ever had an opportunity to drive that sort of thing you know if someone said to me tomorrow do you want to spend a week in a Porsche GT3 I'd go not really you know and I have driven a couple of those GT uh, 911s they're pretty hard to live with which is the point I'm getting to about an M3 okay an M3 is kind of like Most performance cars. When you've got a car that is optimized for really hardcore performance, it's awesome to drive like that. It's properly awesome. And I have loved every M3 I've ever driven. I loved all of the M5s. You know, the V10 M5 was sensational. I've driven M3s back to the days when they were those ball tearing straight sixes. They're just very nice cars to drive like that. But they are really difficult to live with. And the 330CI kind of alternative, I've always thought that was the one to live with. But as you say, George, the M340i is kind of in between them and it might be the sweet spot. What it really depends on is you going and having a test drive and pointing this out to the dude at the dealership that you can't decide whether it's M3 or M340i or the 330, you know. And then it just depends on your own personal epistemological calibration, you know? Which one do you believe is the sweet spot for you? Because a lot of people love their M3s and a lot of people loving them are just driving them in traffic every day. And they statistically never have a thrash. And they never drive them on a public road in the manner that they're able to be driven. Because hey, essentially you can't because you haven't got the software. And if you did, it would be grossly antisocial, not to mention highly illegal and your license would go quickly on holiday. And so, you know, a lot of those people love the thought of having an M3. It's, it's beyond enough for them. It's a statement. It's my M3. See my M3, peasant kind of thing. Well, it's that for a lot of people. But in the domain of driving on a public road, I really do think a 330 or an M340i might be the sweet spot. And you might, have, you might actually enjoy that car more, even though you might enjoy being seen in an M3 more kind of thing so anyway thanks for the tweet George I did have a laugh at that that was one of those rare examples on Twitter where you know somebody's kind of given it to you but they're giving it to you in a non-malicious way we're just all blokes having fun having a bit of a shot at each other rather than straw manning each other and getting out the sword because hey you, the rest of your life is crap, so I'll stick it into someone kind of thing. And there needs to be more of that. What we need to... It, I really believe what we need to arrive at is one of these more relaxed information ecosystems where we can communicate with each other and have a good-natured shot backwards and forwards, you know, but also not just treat every comment that was ever made. And, and possi- not everybody says things in the... Uh, you know, everything... if. <laughs> If there's a record of everything you ever said to everybody, there would be a chapter of, of that compendium that was marked things that I shouldn't have said, which I regret and I would take back instantly. And we need to also acknowledge that that's part of the human condition, right? So sometimes people behave less than perfectly and they don't need to be thrown into the pit of hell. And roasted for eternity as a result of just doing that. I mean, even if you murder somebody, you're back on the street in 20 years or something in some jurisdictions. You know, maybe less. So we tend to we tend to throw away the key when somebody says something that is less than ideal, ill-advised. They shouldn't have said perhaps, but anyway, I I just think we should arrive at a point of balance when it comes to the communicational hierarchy that we. Enjoy today, and George. Thank you for yours because I did get a giggle out of that, and it was a it was a pretty confronting day on Friday. Frankly, I wasn't having a particularly good time because of some personal things that had come up. So it was nice to it was nice to be at a loose end for ten minutes and have a good natured exchange like that with you, mate. So I appreciate you being part of the audience. Uh, Richards. Zarins. I hope I didn't mangle that too badly. Says, a friend of mine had 2-door coupe Civic year 98. He put in 95 and that car just kept going until he lost his car literally. He parked it one place and it wasn't there after a while. Well, yeah, I'm I'm sure that 95 octane fuel is a fine fuel. It's just that the car would have run almost as well on 91. You know, it's for most people it's a waste of money, okay? So, Bunta Fujiwara now says, Konnichiwa, Bunta Fujiwara. wakarimasen niongo choto dake. What's the word? I can't bring it to mind straight away. Watashi wa John-san. you me shite. Anyway, uh, where are we? Where is that comment now? I hate it when it bounds up like that, and I talked it up so big. Oh, God. Anyway, we'll get back to that if we can. George, an, a different George now, says, I currently have a Lexus IS 350F Sport. Love the brand and customer service, but their technology is failing rapidly, be- falling rapidly behind. Set so Germans, I know you recommend BMW over uh, the other two Germans. Yeah, look, I, I think Lexus has Toyota syndrome to some extent. Their designs are somewhat dated and... They tend to think that things like Apple CarPlay and Android Auto are revolutionary, and we might get around to it one day. So, yeah, if I was going to buy one of those premium automobiles, right, it would have to be a. Uh, it would have to be a BMW because I really think BMW is true to their ethos, which is the ultimate driving machine. I think they strive for that in many ways. They don't always achieve it. Uh, in the in 7 Series BMW, for example, they've got those louvers on the radiators that open and close automatically in, respond to, in response to temperature. So when you need cooling, they open. Right? And when you need aerodynamic drag reduction, when you need a reduction in the coefficient of drag, they close and they make the shape slipperier. Okay? And to me, you know, if you've got $400,000 to spend on a 7 Series, do you give a shit what the price of fuel is or how much you're buying? So why bother with the aerodynamic drag thing? It doesn't make sense. In, in that sense, it's an ultimate appeasement machine, environmental appeasement machine. Uh, you know? But generally, BMW tends to be pretty damn good at its uh, at its ultimate driving machine thing, and certainly they look after customers in my experience better than uh, the other. Too, you know, Audi and uh, Mercedes-Benz, they're just better at that. So, And I know this because what's happened to me several times is I, I get complaints referred to me from various owners of various brands, and every time, without exception, when I've referred one of those complaints to BMW head office, it's been a case of being let down a little bit by the dealer, but head office has given the dealer a course correction and uh, deployed the appropriate technical uh, support when necessary. And those frowns have quickly gone upside down. And there have been two different public relations managers that I've referred those uh, complaints to. And the business has functioned the same way in under both of those PR uh, management styles. And you know, I don't do it very often, but when I do, the frown goes upside down when the complaint seems legitimate from the customer. And uh, that's very impressive. And you don't get the same sort of response from head office at mercedes-benz or audi you just don't okay so that that's my principal um that's my principal observation there when it comes to uh, you know when it comes to buying a premium car nobody expects to get one of those uh one of those problems but obviously when it does happen it's nice to have a better style of support and uh, and lexus is really good at that but the product's not premium German. You know, it's, it's almost premium German, but it's, it's not, you know, so there's that. Back to Bunter now. I found Bunter's, uh, Bunter's uh, chat, which is what the, all of that stuttering was about in my last response, because men can't multitask. You can't scroll and talk at the same time. And if you think you can, you're just self-delusional. That's how it is. So Bunter says, cyclists riding three wide in an 80 zone while an empty bike path runs parallel. I get that. I get that. Okay. And what I'm suggesting is that all road users behave responsibly and diplomatically and pragmatically and with empathy to all other road users. So to all of you cyclists out there doing shit like that because you can, you're giving every cyclist a bad name, you know, and you're you're amping up tension on the road where you need not. If there's a bike lane, friggin' use it. And like if you're a pedestrian, pedestrians are particularly vulnerable and what i'd suggest is if you're driving a car do everything you can not to crash into a frigging pedestrian like this should not be a revolutionary suggestion it should just be oh yeah i'm going to drive a car and one of my default settings that cannot be changed is do everything i can not to d- not to crash into a pedestrian or a cyclist but if you're a pedestrian how about you don't put yourself at risk? Or a cyclist, right? If you're a pedestrian and the little green man comes up and you're walking across, how about you walk across briskly to give the traffic that's waiting to turn left or right a fair old crack at doing that? How about you take your face out of your phone so that you can identify danger? Because there are obligations on all of us. We're all road users, okay? And Everyone driving a car becomes a pedestrian and some pedestrians and drivers become cyclists and some people become motorcyclists and we're all in it together and the system's imperfect and it can be grossly improved and the biggest single improvement that could happen with Harry Potter's big wand tomorrow is if we all just behaved like non-dickheads giving each other a fair go out there on the road. How difficult would it be? so tone now Oh no we're not going to do tone tone gets far too much of a run and the ch- and the chat just jumped up like i don't know it had an epileptic fit jason d says hi john another question from me no problems mate thanks for joining the stream i'm looking for a replacement for my holden calais sedan what would you recommend similar to drive and comfort things of that nature well you could go and have a look at a stinger it would be kind of like that v8 Grand touring machine. You could also look at a Camry because I know they have that awful sort of uh, automotive equivalent of the color beige kind of thing going for them but the current one's actually okay and it's quite large you could look at a Mazda 6 as well that's uh, an understated car as well as a Hyundai Sonata so check all of them out and it depends kind of what matters to you it depends whether it's performance or ride quality or whether you like that uh, you know engagement or whatever it is but if you drive those four I think it was then report back mate and we'll work it out from there in subsequent live streams which i plan on doing uh, quite a bit more at this time and isn't it interesting because we've had uh, we've been going now for about as near as i can tell an hour and seven minutes or something and we haven't had any hiccups on the stream front right The app is telling me the connection is excellent and it's not falling all over itself in the manner that it typically does on a Thursday evening at about 9 p.m., which I guess is when the mad keen gamers all gum up the system of our imperfect um, uh, national broadband network. So I might be transitioning, I think, to a few more lunchtime live streams at the weekend and during the week as well, because, you know, you can always play it back in the evening. But if you want to participate, you might have to engage during the middle of the day so that the stream doesn't become intolerable to watch towards the end there. But we'll see how we go. I might also transition to sort of 7.30 p.m. on a Thursday and see how that goes from a demand point of view. But I'm not going to soldier on if that just degenerates into, um, you know, unmitigated crap. Now, Dr. Elvis H. Christ says driving courtesy is great but only works when everyone does it no that's not actually the case doctor what what's actually the case is you've got to ignore the dickhead you just do okay it's kind of like it's kind of like not getting in a fist fight to get in a fist fight in a in in many cases not not every case but in many cases you're often complicit you know, even though you might be notionally on the ethical landscape, the wrong ed party, you're often complicit in this process of getting in the fight, right? Because you don't turn the other cheek. You don't get, mate, come on. Come on, I don't want to fight. Can I, can I buy you another drink? Like, let, we're all in this together. I'm, I'm terribly sorry if I offended you, whatever, okay? It's the monkey dance, right? Once you get two sets of index fingers going like this into two chests, that's when a fight sparks off right? But if you really don't want to engage and you've you got to cop it, your ego has to cop one for the team, absolutely. Just don't engage, right? So if somebody cuts you off in traffic, you can, uh, you can use the horn illegally and flash the lights at them illegally. You can overtake them and cut them off illegally and then you can brake test them illegally and then they can get out with a screwdriver and jam it into your chest illegally. Or in a parallel universe, the reasonable universe, someone cuts you off and you go, dude, you're an asshole," And you just drop back and you keep driving. And you just roll with it because we're all stocked up on assholes out there on the road. But you can do your little bit to un the driving environment. You just can. It's not that hard. So uh, uh, Dr. Christ <laughs> goes on and says, It's hard enough to even get most idiots to put down their phones and pay attention. Yes, it is difficult to do that. You can't expect everybody on the road, sadly, to be diligent. Uh, You can't expect them to manage distractions. You can't expect them not to be hyper-aggressive assholes, particularly here in Australia, where that kind of thing is a big problem, particularly in our cities. So all you can do is mitigate the risk and control your own behavior. And that's got to be your primary job if you're holding the steering wheel. Mitigate risk and just don't amp up the aggression in your neck of the woods. And I would have to say that I have not always been perfect at either of those things. But as I age, I am seeing the benefit to being better at it. And, you know, that's one of the things we can do, isn't it? We can aspire tomorrow to be better than we are today. It's like exercise, right? I always talk about exercise and the purpose of which is to make you, it's, it's to crush your soul and leave you a withered husk, and to demoralize you completely, and to reinforce how pathetic you are physically, okay? That's what exercise is, really. Don't believe any of this self-help shit. That's what exercise is. That's what it's got to be. And therefore, the motivation to, to exercise tomorrow springs from the desire to be incrementally, infinitesimally less pathetic tomorrow, but to still have your soul crushed And that's the only way exercise works. That's how you get better. Driving's like that. It's a crap environment, generally. You know, it's not fun. Driving's fun. Uh, Heel and towing back from fourth to third at 4,000 RPM or something. 5,000 in a good car. Healing, heel and towing back at about 5,000 RPM in a good car. Hard under brakes into turn one. That's awesome. Okay. That's driving. Just being in the car in a city, that's shit. It's intolerable shit. Okay. And all all you can do is treat it like exercise. Just make your relationship with that process slightly less intolerable shit tomorrow. It's still going to crush your soul. Okay. And that's allowed because that's the way life is in so many different ways. I'm not a feel-good guy. I'm, I'm a pragmatic drill sergeant. So there's that. Remus now. Remus Laurentius says, I agree with what John said. Well, that, that's not a prerequisite of being part of the stream, but thanks. Says, just because some people act like jerks doesn't mean we've got to be mean and hostile to everyone. No, it doesn't. And you, you don't even have to do that like this is something you do for the other guy okay you're not doing it for him you're doing it for you because if you go off in traffic what you're doing is ramping up the risk to you and the people in the car with you whom you generally love and want to protect okay so it's like forgiveness people think forgiveness is this thing that you you do for somebody else that's what what a load of shit you do you, you forgive someone because it takes the load off you when you drop it and forgive it okay Failing to forgive somebody is like drinking the poison and hoping the other dude dies, <laughs> right? It's it's perverse, you know. The human condition is perverse, and it's certainly not the way Hollywood portrays it. So that, that's one of the problems with pop culture. So we'll just do another couple of these now. My voice is starting to pack up because, hey, this is a lot harder than radio. We've been going for an hour and 15 minutes, and in radio, we would have had two news breaks for five minutes a piece and like, uh, I don't know, five or six ad breaks by now at two and a half minutes apiece. It's quite hard to talk for an hour and 15 minutes without gibbering like a monkey. Uh, RL Ajito says, did anyone notice the double standard of having freedom to risk your life on the road, but not freedom to risk your life in this pandemic? You don't really have the freedom to risk your life on the road. Morally, you certainly don't because if you die on the road, your problems are over, or at least they're in a domain, you know, that some people believe exists, but we have no evidence for, and you'll be dealing with them over there, and there's, you know, no, Ouija boards really don't work, so there's really no communication to and from, we never know, Uh, but your problems are over in this domain, okay, but, You don't have the freedom to risk your life on the road. Because if you die on the road, imagine what it's like for the poor bastards who have to pick up the pieces, the paramedics and the police officers who have to see the carnage and control the environment over and over again and see the impact on other people. And then if you are rushed to hospital and you succumb to your injuries there, imagine the post-traumatic stress disorder type effect on emergency medical staff okay? This is terribly confronting for them and the social workers at the hospital who have to ring your relatives and get them to come to the hospital quickly because this might be the last time they see you and the effect on your family. And if you think in that context that you have the right to risk your life on the road, we live in different ethical universes if you think that is the case. It's it's patently not the case. Certainly, there is nothing that's going to stop you if you decide to risk your life on the road okay but that's not the same thing as having the right to do it so I'd take exception with that one but you know we all live we all live life in according to a different set of rules and that's just my take on it Brad Griffin now I've seen Brad's name pop up here and there for many years in various comments And uh, thank you for being a long-term fan of the channel, Brad. I appreciate that. Having been a uh, professional driver for 30-odd years, Brad says, I've learned that raging at dickhead drivers is pointless, like trying to teach a pig to dance. Yeah, that's right. The novelty would wear off, certainly, because uh, talk about your target-rich environment. As a professional driver, someone who's on the road all the time, raging at dickheads would get old in week two of the job, wouldn't it? And, And it doesn't make any difference it's like forgiveness. You've got just got to drop it and let it go. And then, hey, everything becomes easier. And your blood pressure. <laughs> Think about the impre- the effect on your blood pressure and the cardiovascular health as a result of just dropping that stuff. Wiley, Wiley? Willie Nebula says, Welcome to the dark side. You have been shadow banned and demonetized. John, you have mentioned the banned word. Okay. I, I don't see that, but Okay. I don't think I've breached any of the community guidelines. I do try and stay inside the box. I tried to do that in radio and I almost managed it too most of the time. Keith says, John, don't you find people have split personalities like Goofy from Disney then get behind the wheel and they turn into this angry know-it-all dude or dudette? Yeah, I do find that. I actually find there's some remarkable inconsistencies in people like I know people who get behind the wheel of a car, who drive a car and rage at cyclists and pedestrians and then behave deplorably if they become cyclists or pedestrians. So, you know, the human condition, when you make sense of that, get back to me, dude, you know. Now, uh, we'll do one more. R.L. Ajito has come back with a response. I do like uh, R.L. He's a regular too. And he's someone who almost, without exception, disagrees with me. He says... I'm not sure I was clear enough but we all risk our lives being outside in the traffic on for on foot or not. Okay. So risking risk is a different thing to going out and taking unacceptable risks. So yeah, we we do risk our lives. We risk our lives if we remain in bed because you know, it would probably it's probably a fairly unhealthy way to live lying down all the time, dude what you don't have the right to do is take unacceptable risks on the road. This is the point I was making. And you also don't have the right to place yourself at risk in a pandemic because of the nature of the transmission of the disease. And, I think there's a great many things to be learned from the pandemic, in particular the different policies that were were enacted around the world and at what time they were enacted and how effective they were at keeping the infection under control. I think we could all learn a great deal in the domain of risk management on things of that nature. Let's try and end, shall we, on a slightly more upbeat note. Uh, Abstar 1989, I've got no idea whether this will be Upbeat or downbeat. It's one of the things about being live in this environment. There's no vetting of the chats. We'll just go for it and wait until we get to an upbeat one. Glad to see the streaming quality has been vastly improved over the last live stream. Me too, dude. And it's got everything to do with the time of day, I feel. Um, I was quite disappointed with the stream quality last time, not pointing the finger at anyone. Well, I'd be pointing the finger at Malcolm Turnbull, you know, because he was the dude at the top of the decision-making process for the NBN. And if we all had fibre to our homes, this same level of congestion would not take place when, you know, everyone's using the internet at 9pm. And all of the investigation I've done has led me to the conclusion that this problem cannot go away for me at that time. And that's just another example of your tax dollars at work, although not, effect- not as effectively as tax dollars at work for other people in other places. So what I'm going to do pragmatically with relation to these um, live streams is I'm just going to choose a time when I can engage with as many of you as possible in this way, when the stream is likely to be better supported so that it doesn't seem like, you know, aliens have possessed my brain and only allow me to get, you know, (laughs) three seconds worth of words out for every 12 seconds of speech, which is highly difficult to follow, but I don't know, it could be somewhat entertaining if you've had enough to drink, for example. So there's that. Anyway, it is now 20 past one in the afternoon, Sunday the 22nd of November, and this stream has gone amazingly well. The chat has worked, the stream quality has been contemporaneously excellent the whole time. We've had Good interaction with a bunch of you and I thank you sincerely for your uh, company this afternoon. Unfortunately, just out there in the heat if you are here in Chittsville at the moment, the lawn does still need mowing. You'll have to get on top of that and you'll have to interact with the other people in your life and this may not be entirely an uplifting process but I thank you for your company this afternoon and we'll be back. I'll figure out what I'm going to do with the timing of the streams. I'll let you know in the community page on my channel and uh, I'll make announcements on Twitter and things of that nature. And if you subscribe and hit the bell notification icon, obviously you will get a desktop alert when I go live as well. So there's that. Anywho, that's it from me. Thanks very much for your company. Enjoy the rest of your weekend.